Welcome to the Insight Podcast. Joining me on the show today is Dr. Megan Lee. Megan is a researcher, scientist, and academic at Bond University on the Gold Coast in Australia. She has a PhD in nutritional psychiatry and has published research on food and mood, body image, disordered eating, dietary patterns, and mental health. I talked to Megan about hedonic adaptation and what it's got to do with alcohol, how alcohol affects our brains, challenging attitudes and beliefs around alcohol, a really powerful activity for reassessing your relationship with alcohol, positive behavior change and habits, and much more. Enjoy the episode. So, Megan, welcome back on the show. It's your second time on, isn't it? Yeah, thanks for having me again, Sam. Not at all, not at all. Um, on Instagram, you've kind of changed your handle and things recently, haven't you? Um, you're the, the food mood doctor. Mood food? Food mood? <laughs> so perhaps the listeners could get a bit more of a sense of, you know, why is that your handle and um, what exactly are you doing at the moment? What is your work based around? Yeah, no worries. So I am the Food Mood Doctor, so at Food Mood Doctor on all the socials. I also have a website, www.foodmooddoctor.org. And basically why I'm called that is because I am a scientific researcher here in Australia in nutritional psychiatry. So I am one of the world experts in how nutrition impacts your mental health. Wow, which is just such a cool topic. And it's something that I've just been learning about more and more recently and I think more and more people are becoming aware, aren't they, of this link between food and mental health because, of course, traditionally we thought of food as only impacting our physical health, um, our weight, things like that. But now we're understanding that actually it has these these wide-ranging impacts, isn't it, on our mental health, on our sleep, mood, all these things. So it's it's a fascinating topic. You must, I know that you love it, don't you? You, you absolutely love it. <laughs> I definitely do and I find it really interesting that uh, we've always known that uh, nutrition and healthy eating uh, improves our physical health but it's only kind of been in the last 10-15 years that we've really twigged onto that well maybe it helps our mental health as well and then all this new research and how our gut bacteria speaks to the brain and how food interacts there it's it's fascinating. But we're going to take this conversation in a slightly different direction aren't we <laughs> um yeah we are today <laughs> we are kind of mid-january it's dry january for many people isn't it so lots of people for this month are cutting out alcohol completely but i think more generally people are thinking about alcohol aren't they and perhaps drinking a bit less some people are even cutting it out completely because I think we're getting more and more information thanks to podcasts, thanks to TED Talks, all these different things around alcohol. And people are understanding that, oh, perhaps alcohol is one of the factors that is um, affecting how I feel. Perhaps alcohol is one of the factors that uh, is contributing to me maybe not performing at my best. And so because people become more aware, aren't they? And they're thinking, maybe I should cut this out or maybe I should at least drink less um 
It's a topic I'm really interested in. I know it's a topic that you have researched and thought deeply about. So I'm really glad when you suggested, when you suggested, let's talk about alcohol, Sam. I was like, yes, great. <laughs> Why don't we start with the hedonic, hedonic adaptation theory? Well, this is not my idea to start here. This is your idea to start here, isn't it? <laughs> but listeners might be thinking, uh, first of all, what is it? And also, what has this got to do with alcohol? So I want to preface the whole conversation with the fact that I'm not standing up here lecturing people preaching. about <laughs> quitting alcohol, preaching, and um, being a teetotaler myself. So I have uh, I I do drink. I in the past I haven't really liked my relationship with alcohol, and I'm not saying that I um, have. Um, I don't drink a lot, but I'll drink on the weekend or if I'm feeling stressed or, you know, the usual normal alcohol intake. But I've always, like, kind of not liked my relationship with alcohol. And this has kind of um, spurred me to look into the literature a little bit um, on alcohol and how it impacts your brain and your mood and your mental health. So... I last year I did 50 days in a row at the end of the year of like no alcohol and felt amazing. But then Christmas came along and, you know, dealing with family at Christmas time and celebrating and commiserating. (laughs) (laughs) And so (laughs) these things always come up. So I'm not here to, to preach at people about this because I am also living the same thing. And everything that I talk about today is backed by the scientific evidence, but it's also something that I live myself. Um, Hedonic adaptation theory. Let's get into that. So I teach, (laughs) I teach positive psychology at Bond University um, here on the Gold Coast in Australia. And one of the tenets of positive psychology is kind of moving away from the old deficit model of psychology where we're taking people who are mentally unwell or experiencing a mental health disorder and trying to fix them or treat the disorder after it has occurred. Now, positive psychology is a little bit different to that. And it developed in the 1990s by um, Martin Seligman, who decided that psychology should move away from that deficit model and should start looking at helping people who are mentally well. And say we've got a continuum from like minus 10, that's someone who has a mental health disorder, up to zero, someone who is not experiencing a mental health disorder, up to 10, who is someone who is flourishing in their life. So he he developed positive psychology to learn how to get people who are kind of at a zero or a five up to a 10. So hedonic adaptation theory is this theory of happiness. Now, there are two types of happiness. Hedonia, which is the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain at any cost. And eudaimonia, which is the type of happiness that is sustainable and long-living and cultivated throughout life. So hedonic adaptation theory suggests that everybody has a baseline of happiness. And that baseline of happiness, no matter what happens to us in our lives, good or bad, we consistently over time go back to that baseline of happiness. So if you fail an exam or fail a test and your happiness decreases underneath your baseline, 
over a certain period of time, you're going to come back to baseline and you're not going to feel as unhappy as you did when that, uh, when you fail the exam in that moment. But the same thing happens on the happiness side. So if you say buy a new house and you've saved up for years and you've got this house and you've got this high amount of happiness and the house is new and you're nesting in it and you're moving all your furniture in and you're at this peak of happiness, over time, it's about three months, your your level of happiness will return to baseline. And no matter what you do in life, you're constantly in these ups and downs, but always returning to that baseline. And we overestimate and underestimate how happy or unhappy events can um, happen in our life. And when we have lows, we think we'll never come back to baseline. And when we have highs, we hope to stay above our baseline. Now, (laughs) how that relates to alcohol. So all substances, coffee, alcohol, illicit drugs, anything that we take that changes our happiness levels or our energy levels works on this kind of hedonic adaptation theory as well. So non-consumers of alcohol or non-consumers of coffee are at this baseline. Their baseline is higher than people who consume coffee or alcohol. So our baseline's lower when we when we consume these addictive substances. So every time we drink alcohol or we drink coffee, we go up above our baseline mm. and we feel with coffee, we feel energetic and we feel um, focused and we feel like chatty and with alcohol, we feel relaxed and smooth and funny and things like that. But the adaptation back down to baseline then falls beneath our, our normal baseline levels or the baseline levels of a non-consumer. And every alcoholic drink that you have pushes you further and further down Now, the amazing miracle of alcohol is that it impacts our brains in a way where we don't realize this is happening to us and we actually feel worse after every drink and we reach for another one to push us back up over that baseline. So, this is alcohol is a very tricky substance for this reason and for many other reasons we'll get into in a second about how it impacts how our brain works mm-hmm. all fascinating stuff i've got to say though smooth is not a word that i would use to describe myself when i drink alcohol <laughs> sometimes alcohol can trick us into thinking that we're funnier than we are that we're better dancers that than we sounds are, about right. that we sing better than we can <laughs> <laughs> for sure yeah yeah what, well, sorry one of the that's okay. One of the interesting things about this whole baseline thing is that you know the feeling that you get during the day. Maybe you've had something um, happen to you at work. It's a little bit stressful. And the feeling you get during the day where you're like, I can't wait to go home and sit on the couch and have a beer and watch the football. I'll sit on the couch, drink a glass of wine with my loved one, with my partner. That feeling isn't actually a feeling of relaxation. It's the withdrawal symptoms that you were having from the alcohol you previously had the time before. Oh, you've got to expand more on that because I think, of course, people will resonate with that and I'll resonate with that as well. That, yeah, that feeling, the the association with relaxing and switching off and like, oh, it's the end of the day, like, tss, open the beer, uncork the bottle of wine. It's like, ah, now I can relax. Um, 
But what's actually going on there? So it's a withdrawal symptom, just like, and I'm, I'll probably use heroin as an, uh, an example because it's such an extreme example compared to alcohol. But you think about people who have a heroin addiction, it's the same thing, right? So they have the drug, the drug relieves them of the feeling of withdrawal from the last time. And then once the drug is removed from the system or starts leaving the system, you start to feel those withdrawal symptoms again. It's the exact same thing with alcohol. So those feelings that you get, those itchy feelings like, yeah, I can't wait to have my, my glass of wine at dinner time. That is actually a withdrawal symptom from the previous time you had the alcohol. And studies have proven or shown that just that action that you said of um, chinking the beer and hearing the ch that relaxes you or that removes the withdrawal symptoms before you even ingest the alcohol mm. because your body is preparing itself for the ingestion of the substance. Yeah. Which surely must be like an advertisement for alcohol-free beer or something like that because like if it's just the, the, the noise and the feeling, and isn't, it just, isn't this to do with kind of ritual and habits as well? We just associate these things with each other. And I know that I, I have that as well, you know, the, my morning cup of coffee and like preparing it, the smell and putting it in the cafetiere and the plunging it down. It's all like, I've started drinking yerba mate more now and it's like putting it in and you have to shake it. And then there's this whole process and it's like, ah, whereas actually... For example, coffee, maybe I shouldn't be drinking it so early in the morning and maybe I shouldn't be having as much as I do, but it's just this habit, like certain times throughout the, the day at work, you just, you do these things, don't you? And I think this is where a conversation like this and someone who's looked into it like you have is just helping raise awareness. That's all we're trying to do, isn't it? Raise awareness. Like, is it the alcohol that you're really craving or is there other things going on? And if we understand our patterns and our brain a bit better we can take things in a different direction that all of a sudden you go oh i'm feeling a bit better i'm, I'm feeling less lethargic i'm feeling more positive but i think that's really interesting what you said if there's research to say that it's just the opening of it it's not even the the, the taste or the effect that it's having on our bodies which is what most people i guess would think that it's it's relaxing us it's actually doing something if i ingest it whereas there's more going on there isn't there Sure. And if I can be, uh, give you some good scientific um, advice about coffee, I know we're talking about alcohol today, but coffee is actually shown in science to be good for you. So good. Three and a half you, you can cups stay on coffee. the show. You can stay. We can keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> three and a half normal shots of coffee. Um, and if you want to hear more about this, Tim Spector has written a book called Spoonfed, and there's a whole chapter on coffee and the scientific evidence behind um, all the health benefits of coffee. But one of the one of my favourite ones is that three and a half cups of coffee a day gives you the same amount of fibre as one banana or a bowl of cereal. There you go. You've heard it here first. <laughs> and the antioxidants in the coffee are good for your gut microbiome, which is good for your brain. So. Chocolate and coffee, dark chocolate, 80%. 
These are two things that are good for your mental health and your mood. Which is a very, we, we love to hear it. We love to hear it. That's great. Can, can the same be said of alcohol? Like, can the same be said that one or two drinks a day, one or two drink, uh, drinks a week is good for us? Like, you know, I'm sure 10 cups of coffee isn't great for us, is it? But there's this range where it's doing us any favours. Can the same be said for alcohol? Is there any amount of alcohol that is that is good people talk about red wine don't they or oh, a glass of red wine that's something that traditionally has been said a glass of red wine um you know with your evening meal once a day people talk about the blue zones don't they and use them as an example and i know that this is a another question that's going off on a bit of a, a tangent perhaps but um <laughs> and i'm sure it's complicated but what are your thoughts on that is there is there a minimum amount that is okay or is that not the case Unfortunately, Sam, there is no safe limit of alcohol. None of the dietary guidelines in Australia, in particular, or any of the Western countries feel that there is a safe level of alcohol or science hasn't proven that there is. But there is lots of scientific evidence out there to say that there's antioxidants in red wine, which is good for you. The problem with that is the alcohol itself negates the the good benefits of the antioxidants inside the grapes, really. And you'll get the same benefit from a handful of blueberries, a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Yeah. But that's not as appealing, is it? Like if you say to someone, well, you've got like <laughs> there's enough in a handful of blueberries. It's like, ah, but this is what this is about, isn't it? About raising that awareness. And yet I've heard the, the same thing that kind of the amount of red wine you'd have to drink to actually get the, those, those, those benefits would just be a, a crazy amount. And of course you are drinking that much alcohol, which as you said, negates the benefits. So it's interesting. Yeah, and unfortunate for all of us who love a glass of red wine. At <laughs> exactly. So what are <laughs> the effects on the brain? What's going on here when people drink alcohol? How does it affect the brain? This is one of my favourite questions to put on my Foundations of Psychology exam. It's like one of my favourites. So I know this one quite well. So there are biological mechanisms of alcohol in the brain. So we'll start with the amygdala. It's a part of the brain at the back near our brainstem that is responsible for our fear response. It keeps us safe. So when we've been drinking alcohol and the more that we drink, that fear response becomes less and we're more likely to take risk-taking behaviours. So uh, thinking about things like when you were binge drinking in your 20s and you like, particularly for women, walked home in the middle of the night by yourself, you could not do that if you hadn't been drinking <laughs> or go home with someone that you've never met before. Like that's the sort of stuff that you don't do when you haven't ingested alcohol, but you don't even think twice about it. So that was the first one. Broca's area is a part of the brain that's responsible for our production of speech and how we talk to each other. Broca's area gets affected by alcohol and that's why we slur our speech and we can't talk anymore. But alcohol tricks our brain into thinking that we're very uh, intelligent and our conversations are amazing and that we're having these really great conversations with our friends and family. Now, Wernicke's area is another part of the brain responsible for the interpretation of communication. So uh, interpreting what your friend is saying to you 
when alcohol is ingested or you're a little bit over the top with alcohol, you misinterpret things that others say to you. So you, and another, another time if you're in a nightclub and, and you see two people having an altercation because, or a fight about something. And sometimes they're both saying the same thing to each other yeah. and they're agreeing, but they're arguing about it. That's a problem with Wernicke's area. <laughs> um, our frontal lobe is responsible for our personality and our um, higher levels of thinking and our higher levels of cognition. So I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I had a friend when I was younger who when she drank, she turned into someone completely different. She was such a lovely person sober, but when she was intoxicated, she was violent and she was rude to people and she got into fights and she was aggressive. And when she, the next day when she was sober, she didn't remember any of that. So only people who were out with her when she was intoxicated knew this other personality that she had. Have you ever experienced something like that before? Yeah, someone, I'm thinking of someone in my family, but I won't (laughs) say who it is. She knows who she is. (laughs) We'll move on then. So, (laughs) So then there's the hippocampus. The hippocampus is responsible for our long term memory. And the way that I remember this, and I tell all my students this, if you saw a hippo crossing the campus, that would be something that you would remember for a very long nice. time. <laughs> so the hippocampus responsible for long-term memory, my friend who never remembered what she did the night before, that was because her hippocampus was being impacted by the alcohol. It also causes blackouts because hippocampus is responsible for homeostasis and things like that. So this is another reason we fall over a lot or we run into things when we're intoxicated because the hippocampus is being impacted by the alcohol. And finally, the limbic system, which is responsible for our mood, our emotions and our mental health. If you've seen someone crying in the gutter when they're drunk, for no reason this is because the limbic system is being impacted by alcohol so it disrupts our mood it it means we have an inability of controlling our emotions and our emotional regulation and when you hear it one after the other like that you're like why did i ever drink <laughs> why why would i ever subject that to myself and you know i met a, a close friend of mine for <laughs> coffee on sunday morning and he'd been out the night before with his wife um they'd gone to a, a concert but they both weren't, I think they'd both normally have a drink on that kind of evening, but they'd both been feeling unwell, so they both decided not to have a drink. And so they were walking through Birmingham city centre and and my friend said to me like, Sam, you look around and people are just acting so strange, aren't they? They're just, you can't believe how people are behaving. They're yelling at each other. There's like two strangers hugging, people with their phones stumbling over. And it's true, isn't it? Like if... If you don't have a drink and go out in an evening and just watch people, I think that's a good place for motivation to think like, am I like, because you're one of those people. I was one of those people. Like, this is not judgment because I was one of those people stumbling around, acting like an idiot, not acting myself. I'm quite a shy, reserved person. I can remember, excuse me, that's the yerba mate again, like getting caught in my throat. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I, I'm normally shy, but I'd, I'd have a drink in my 20s and just be like leery and loud and like over the top confident. And you just kind of look at people and you go, oh, wow, like 
we're just behaving like idiots, basically. That's not to say, of course, that you can have a couple of drinks and be social every so often. Like those are some of some of the really nice evenings, aren't they? A, A beer or two with friends. But we're talking about like when you have regularly drinking a lot and binge binge drinking, as you say, like all these effects that it's having. And we just, we act crazy. It's crazy. (laughs) I think you're right about that. But the amount of alcohol that makes you, makes your brain systems change is a very small amount. And I think a really cool activity that um, Annie Grace from This Naked Mind suggests to do is to and it'll show you that even one drink impacts how you how you change even and like i said alcohol is really magic it's tricky and it makes you believe that you're in control of yourself so this activity that annie grace suggests is take away all the external things that make you happy so friends family music tv iphone everything away get a recording device and video record yourself. You can do this on Zoom, doing this in Zoom meeting, consuming alcohol and narrating to the camera about your feelings and your thoughts and um, see, and in the moment you think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm being really intelligent, my jokes are really funny, and you're talking to yourself. And then go back and replay the video the next day after you're, after you're sober. You only have to do it for one or two three drinks depending on, on your um, your immunity to alcohol. But even one drink, it's shocking the changes in your physiology and your the way that your brain's thinking and the way your thoughts are going and like it's it's an incredible activity to to try. That sounds really interesting. What so get rid of everything, just sit in front of a camera and just drink. No one around you, no TV in the background, no music, and just talk at the camera. Is that is that right, the activity? Yeah, because usually we think that alcohol um, makes things fun, and it's not actually the case. It's the friends, it's yeah. the family, it's the music, it's the TV, it's the socialising that makes things fun. But because we've been drinking alcohol since we were in our teens or – 18 here in Australia, um, we've associated all these fun times, all these fun things with the ingestion of alcohol. Now, recently I went to Good Things Festival here in Australia, which is a heavy metal festival um, with like the Deftones and and all these cool metal bands. And I had two 16-year-olds with me and I was like, okay, responsible adult, I'm not going to drink until the sun goes down. And... I spent, and we got there at lunchtime, and it was 35 degrees, so it was very hot, and I was, like, pumping the kids full of water, and I had the best time. I enjoyed the festival as much as I would have if I was drinking. And then my girlfriend, who who we, I went with, said, let's have one or two drinks. The sun's gone down. The danger's over. We're not going to get super drunk and be irresponsible and not look after the two sixteen-year-olds who are with us. So we had one or two drinks, and the photos from before and the photos from after are completely different. It's really funny, and we took some videos of us dancing and things. But it was small differences, but they were there. 
It's so true. And you can see how that activity would be a, a wake up call to like, what is actually the purpose of this? And I think smokers talk about this, don't they? That like, you know, they, they continue to smoke because of the social aspect. Like, is it the cigarette that you're craving or is it the like having a little break from the club and the, <clears throat> and the bar and the music? And having that like deep one-on-one conversation that you might have when you go outside into the smokers area and you're just looking someone eye to eye, like maybe that's the thing that you're really craving, get a buzz out of. And it's so true. Like recently when I've been on nights out and I've had one beer or not even that, sometimes just none at all. And I've had just as nice a night. I've been able to think clearly but the important thing is the next day I've woken up and I've felt good and I haven't felt sluggish and I haven't felt like in a bad mood or sick. I've been able to wake up and do all the things that I love doing, go training, go to a cafe, whatever it is, and not be like feeling the after effects. So I just think, you know, that activity that you mentioned, experimenting with going out and drinking less or not at all can just be like the the catalyst, can't it? And the motivation for people to reevaluate their their relationship with alcohol i agree completely and even for me if i have one or two glasses of wine at night time i will be less likely to go to the gym in the morning i'll be less likely to eat well the next day Uh, it it sucks your motivation a little bit for the next day which is yeah very interesting definitely for sure um but Excuse me, I keep because it's yerba mate. It's like loose leaf tea. Do you, have, you, have you heard of yerba mate? Do you know? I'm like obsessed with it. I have. I think exactly. Oh yeah, yeah. It. Like that's the only reason I'm drinking it. I'm just trying to be like him, basically. But it's like a loose leaf tea, and you've got a straw with a filter. But every so often, a little bit gets through, and then it like is caught in my throat. <laughs> so note to self: don't drink it when you're supposed to be a professional interviewing someone. But there we go. <laughs> Um, the other thing is like the social occasions though linked to this every social occasion is to do with alcohol isn't it or has an alcohol component and that can be this positive social occasions weddings birthdays celebrating a promotion Christmas time um, but then also the, the the sadder moments in our life the sadder social occasions funerals and things it's all about like raising a glass isn't it it's all about having alcohol so the other factor is the environment that our environment is constantly pushing us to have a drink. People will call us boring if we don't have a drink. There's that social pressure. It's a lot to navigate, isn't it? It is. And I know that particularly in Australia and the UK, this is really hard because it's like a very alcohol fueled society. And like you said, everything is linked to alcohol. So you commiserate with it, you celebrate with it. It's You can't even go to a three-year-old's birthday party here in Australia without being offered a glass of champagne at 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's, and it's really hard to get away from because it's so ingrained into our social norms that if someone isn't drinking, they look that like they're strange yeah. or weird. And people will say things like, oh, just have one, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Going back to, like, the heroin example, imagine if someone was a a heroin user, was trying to give up heroin, and their family or friend said to them, 
Don't worry, just have one, you'll be fine. It seems ridiculous, right? But this is how what we get when we uh, stop drinking. People don't trust non-drinkers. It's like, and it's it's going to be a long time before those social norms ever change. Interestingly, though, our younger generation are drinking far less than we yeah. did when we were their age. In Australia, we're seeing that. I don't know if it's the same in the UK. I'm sure I've heard similar. But yeah, the yeah. younger generation is healthier. Mm. Yeah, it's really heartening to see that they socialise differently. They're on their devices. They sit in their bedrooms together and they talk to each other on their on their phones, on their iPads, or while they're playing video games. Alcohol doesn't seem to be a big component of those activities. So even when they socialise outside, they're more in tune to health and how they want to feel better the next day. Whereas we were like. It was like a trophy to, like, get alcohol poisoning back when we were young. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Which is mad, isn't it? It's like it was a, like you've achieved an accomplishment if, if you were sick the night. It's like yeah, that, during the night, like, that's what we're aiming for, which is yeah. crazy. Like, no other substance that you would intake would you be, like, aiming to have enough that you, it would make you sick. It's like, oh, man, it turns my stomach just thinking about it. But I, I, see, I know what you mean about the younger generation. I think smoking less as well, aren't they? Like, some of the laws around that, and now we're seeing the impact, which is fantastic. And I know people kind of despair about the young generation, but I've got young nieces and nephews and I see people out and it does feel like, yeah, that they, they're spending a lot of time online, but it feels like when they're out, they're still chatting to each other face to face and they're still, um, well, they're also, they're also talking about um, like mental health and, and they're looking out for each other. I get the sense from like one of my nephews, bless him, he's just the sweetest boy. And He's, he's at secondary school and like I talked to him about like how how are people treated at secondary school is there bullying and things like that and he's kind of like no like he, he seems to be a child that like looks out for everyone he's 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 a popular boy he's brilliant at sports good looking of course runs in the family <laughs> but like I remember the, the children like that at secondary school when I went to school would be the ones that would then like you know, beat down on other people and maybe make nasty comments, but it seems like everyone's looking out for people and people that are different, whether it's neurodivergent or different thing, like everyone's looking out for everyone instead of this, like, I don't know, the, these groups and the popularity contests. So all, all this stuff, like, I think maybe we should be a bit more hopeful for Gen Z and kind of give them a bit more credit than, than perhaps they do get given. I think so too. I 100% agree. And I wish I was more like them when I was in my 20s. Same. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so where are we at? Well, what next then? People have listened to this. Maybe people were thinking about drinking less and that's why they've tuned in. Maybe people have tuned in because they're just interested and now they're thinking about drinking a bit less or cutting out alcohol. Like, what are some steps that people can take? What what next and how can people sustain that? Maybe people that have done dry January and they get to the end of the month and think, well, I'm feeling good. How do I keep this up? Um, yeah, how, how can they go about it? So the good thing about things like dry January is that it gives you the ability to put a time limit on it. So your brain's not thinking, I'm quitting forever. Most people, if they ever think that, have a massive freak out. So 28, 30 days, 
I'm not going to drink for that time. People can do that. And they particularly do this because New Year's Eve is always a big one and they probably get alcohol poisoning and they're like, that's it, never again. Yeah. <laughs> Which I have said a million <laughs> times in my life. Now, it takes 28 days to form a habit. So dry January means that after the 28 days or after the 30 days, you don't cognitively have to focus on not drinking. Mm. But in those 30 days, it's really, it's, it's quite tough because you have to think about it. I'm not going to have a drink tonight. I'm not going to have a drink tonight. I'm not going to have a drink tonight. So you're kind of under this little spell that alcohol puts you under because you're in that withdrawal stage, right? Mm-hmm. Right? After 28 days, it becomes a lot easier to say no to alcohol. You don't really have to think about or cognitively focus on not drinking. So it takes 28 days to form that habit. It then takes 64 days to implement a lifestyle change. So after 64 days of not drinking, the alcohol is completely out of your system, so you're no longer having physical cravings for it. At 28 days, you're still having emotional, mental cravings for it, but at 64 days, that's gone, right? So physically, you don't, you're not craving the alcohol substance. And it's easy because you no longer have to think about it and no longer have to think about saying no. So if you can get to 64 days, you are doing really well and you will feel like, trust me, you don't want to drink again. Mm. It's so cool how, how it happens. And you think in those first 28 days, you're never going to get to that stage. I'm never going to like not be thinking about the next drink or that I can't have a drink, but it does happen after those 64 days. But the problem is, Alcohol is such an addictive substance, and it's not your fault that you're addicted to it. It's its fault. It's alcohol's fault because it's the nature of of the addiction. But after 64 days, six months, two years, 10 years, you can be abstinent from alcohol for that entire time. This is what we see with people who are in AA and they, they reoccur or they drink again after 10 years. Instantly, you're back to that square one again because of the nature of the um, of the addictive substance. But after 64 days, you truly believe that you can moderate alcohol now because you don't feel like drinking anymore. And it's a miracle because I've just spent the last 10 years not being able to give up alcohol and not being able to, after 28 days, constantly thinking about it. After 64 days, I no longer feel like I want to drink. But then over time, you're like, I can moderate alcohol now. I'm great. I've got this amazing skill at not drinking. But that once you start drinking again, you you start all over again and you're back to your old ways over time. You may be able to moderate for a little bit, but slowly, slowly, slowly you get back to your old habits and alcohol gets you in its grip and then you can't stop again, <laughs> basically. So just... You'd encourage people to keep it up, like after dry January, after the after a month, if you decide to give it up for a month, just kind of keep powering through, keep powering through, add another 30 days, and that's when you could notice some real changes, which I think we definitely for sure see in people. And then when you, I feel like I've I've had extended periods without alcohol, and then when I go back to it, it takes so much less 
to make me not feel good as well. And so then you you just kind of get caught in that cycle of like, oh, well, only one or two beers makes me feel rubbish, so I'm not even going to have that. And so all of a sudden, like, that provides the extra motivation as well. And what's another really interesting thing is that when you go back to drinking it again, it doesn't taste very mm-hmm. good. You're like, this wine doesn't taste nice. I remember wine tasting really good. This wine must be bad. And you have to, like, drink through it. And this is what it was like back when we first started drinking. If you want to cast your mind back to young Sam, the first time he had a drink of a beer, his dad gave him a sip yeah. of beer. It's it horrible. disgusting, yeah. right? It was horrible. And it's the same for all these other alcohol spirits. It's gross. It's ethyl alcohol. It's what we put in our car, right? It's the same thing. It tastes terrible. They add all this sugar and stuff to make it taste better. But the first time you tried alcohol, it tasted bad. And people convinced you, it's okay, you'll get used to it. And what happened? You did get used to it, and then you got addicted to it, and then you spent a lifetime trying to stop drinking. <laughs> Which, when you put it like that, you just go, don't you? Like, wow. Like, that is, that is what we say to kids, isn't it? Yeah, you'll get used to it. You'll like it when you're older. And, like, these little things, like, why, why are we yeah. saying this to children? Like, we wouldn't do this with any other substance. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And there are parallels with processed food here as well, aren't there, I think? Like, I found that after switching up my diet a little bit and being a bit more health conscious, thanks to following people like you on Instagram, like thinking, right, I'm going to be eating less of these ultra processed foods. And then I find that the less of them I ate, the more effect that they have on me now. So like a cookie or uh, a cake or something will just like completely throw me. And so what then happens though, is that people are like, oh, Sam's a health freak. He's just obsessed. He just thinks his body is a temple and it's like no 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 it's just like because I've gradually eaten less and less it just it doesn't do it for me anymore it doesn't taste good and it leaves me feeling rubbish because I'm always comparing it to well I know what a day of um, like whole foods makes me feel like and me just eating loads of fruit and not any sweet processed foods like I it, it tastes amazing and I feel great Cookies taste amazing. Granola tastes amazing. I love them. But within half an hour, I just, I feel terrible. And there's, there's so many parallels there, isn't there? Like you, you slowly cut back and then the tiny little amount has more of an effect on you. And so then you're kind of motivated to sustain that and do a bit less. But then we hear all the judgment, the judgment, the judgment. Oh, it's only one drink. It's only one cake, piece of cake. Come on, Sam, what's the matter with you? It's just, ah, oh, we're constantly having to like, battle people away, aren't we? It's exactly the same thing. Like when you start eating whole foods, like you said, um, fresh fruit, beds, nuts, seeds, all these wonderful things for our bodies, because we're so attuned to this hyper-sweet, yeah. hyper-salty, ultra-processed, Western diet, fruits and veg and nuts and seeds taste bland. But once you start eating them, 28 days it takes for you. You have to consciously focus on eating healthy, but after 28 days you form the habit, and then after 64 days you have a lifestyle change. Your taste buds yeah. change. And then the fruit and the veg and the nuts and the seeds, because you're not exposing your mouth to these hyper-salty, hyper-sweet foods, they taste amazing now. And all these foods that you make with the combinations of herbs and spices and fruits and veg are amazing. And then you eat KFC or McDonald's and it tastes like 
super salty or a cookie will be like, ah, that's so yeah. sweet. And my son's like that. He's 10 now and he's always eaten quite healthy, not because of me, because of his own choices, but he will say that's too sweet for me when you give him certain <laughs> So, yeah, it is. It, there is a big parallel with um, healthy choices in diet and healthy choices in alcohol mm. consumption. What about positive swaps as well is that something we can talk about like people that are wanting to drink a bit less perhaps and earlier we talked about that routine at the end of the day um i feel like that's a part of kind of our habits isn't it like we've got a habit that maybe isn't um doing us any favors not leaving us feeling very good but it is a habit that we associate with the end of the day or with relaxing and we can make a little swap so that you're you're still doing something you're still cracking something open you're still putting something to your mouth that like tastes good i don't know but it's like it's these little positive swaps isn't it like i know that at the moment i'm trying to drink a little bit less less caffeine because i find that maybe like four caffeinated coffees which i love and as you said, it is, it's kind of good for me and so I'm going to continue to do it. But I feel like that amount of cough, uh, caffeine is just maybe like on my limits and meaning that I'm kind of like working at a bit of an amped up, like my revs are just a little too high underneath the bodywork, and I want it to be a bit less. So I'm trying to drink less caffeine, but that's simple because I can just drink more decaf coffee. So I still get the routine. I can still do, um, you know, make my coffee, but it's, you know, I'm getting rid of that thing that maybe isn't serving me so well. So it's a very, very roundabout and long way of asking you <laughs> what are some other maybe positive swaps? Cause that's all part of, um, behavior change and habits as well, isn't it? Right. So remember three and a half cups of, cups of coffee a day is the perfect nice. amount. So that's why it's interesting that you say yeah. four because that's four is when you like get start getting agitated, wow. maybe in, impacting anxiety. So three and a half cups of coffee a day. Okay. <laughs> to answer your question, the first thing that I would suggest is to read This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. She's a American neuropsychologist who uses liminal training to reprogram the way that you view alcohol. And I read it all the time because I like do the 64-day thing, I feel really good, I'm like, yeah, I'm good at moderating alcohol, I go back to drinking and I end up in the same drinking patterns again. So I read her once every three to six to 12 months, and every time I read it, my 64 days gets longer. So, I, yeah, I end up going longer. At the moment, I'm back 19. <laughs> nice. <laughs> which is interesting because it's the 19th of January. <laughs> but read... Um, this Naked Mind by Annie Grace first. Then you can also substitute for non-alcoholic drinks, obviously. So soda water with fruit. Mocktails is my favourite thing because it's like the shaking of the thing and mixing all the fruits and the, and the things in your cocktail shaker. Makes it feel more fancy. Put it in a fancy glass. I've got girlfriends who drink soda water in a wine glass for that reason. Um, and there's a myriad of non-alcoholic beers and wines and like champagnes on the market these days. I know they're like cedar gin is really good with tonic water. It's completely alcohol free. So, um, and the non-alcoholic beers look like yeah. a beer. So when you go to a social event, like a barbecue, no one even knows that you're not drinking because it looks the same. So that's a, that, they're really good obvious ways of doing that. But there are other things you can do to achieve the same happiness and dopamine 
and serotonin that that original drink will give you. So those things that will impact your positive well-being that you usually get from substances include uh, daily gratitude journaling, and it doesn't have to just be in, in the morning. Um, my son and I write our gratitude each morning on the fridge with a chalk marker. We love doing that. Um, goal setting is really good. Uh, physical activity. <laughs> so one of the things that I try to do when I feel like a drink in the evening is I'll go and do gym at that same time because you're exactly right. It's about those habits, and that habit is get home from work, start making dinner, open a bottle of wine, drink the wine while I'm making dinner, sit on the couch, watch my favourite show, drink another glass of wine. So if you disrupt that habit by doing something else at that time of day where you normally would have the alcoholic beverage, it doesn't have to be going to the gym, but mm -hmm. something else, then you um, that helps with stopping the behaviour. Um, being mindful, so I used to say mindful drinking, so how's this drink making me feel? Do I feel like I need another one? Did I really need this drink when you are drinking? Yeah. Um, eating well, obviously, nutrition um, goes hand in hand with being able to um, reduce your alcohol, meditation, um, and our, our pleasure centers. So one of the greatest things I like telling my students this is if you want a dopamine or a serotonin hit, the best way to do so without taking a substance is to ring someone that you love and have a phone conversation or a conversation with them about something important that happened to you in your day. You get a hit of dopamine insulin from doing that and then you don't get the crash like coffee and screens and things like that. <laughs> yeah, so that's my favourite one to tell my students yeah. about. No, it's so true. Yeah, if you're, if you're sat feeling a bit low of an evening get out your phone, send a WhatsApp message to one of your friends, say, I love you, man. Like, how are you doing? I've been thinking about you. Yep. Just like, wait, <laughs> just wait to have that. Even just sending that makes you feel. And then the response you get is, like, ah, pick up the phone, call your mum and dad while you can, call the family, remind them yep. that you love them. Like these little things we need to, we need to be doing more of. But yeah, I'm sure people could listen and go oh come on like eyes rolling like you really want me to replace my glass of red wine with a gratitude journal or with meditation and it's like we get that don't we? we get that initial response but we say it because like it works it works and like we it can help us feel so good and these are these are free approaches often they're simple they're they're quick and it's just yeah. like finding ways for you to to add more things into your life that bring a bit more joy and a bit more abundance and they're not going to leave you feeling rubbish an hour later or the next day. So completely get any eye rolls, yeah. but like with anything, with any kind of advice around health, well-being, whatever it is, of course you get the people that have that reaction and I don't know, maybe those are the people that need to, need to give it a go the most, aren't they? <laughs> And this is why I recommended reading Annie Grace's This Naked Mind First because the whole premise of the book is she uses liminal training, which is a psychological technique to reprogram your brain into changing the way you see alcohol. And that's where the eye rolls come from. It's because we believe these things in our conscious mind and we're being hit by society about how alcohol makes us smart, alcohol makes us attractive, alcohol makes us social, I can't socialise without alcohol, all these things that we've been programmed in our brains from childhood 
watching our parents drink. It looks like a really adult thing to do and they look like they're really, like, well-mannered and having a good time with their friends. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, well, Annie Grace's book uses a little training to take that out of your conscious mind and to reprogram in the actual things that our cult does. It's, it's a, a pretty amazing book. So that's why I suggest that first before you try doing the gratitude journaling and the mindfulness and the meditation and the swapping out non-alcoholic beverages because without any races book first, you know, you haven't reprogrammed really the way that you think about alcohol and you still believe that it gives you positive things. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really great um, suggestion. Well, just one book can definitely set you on a different path, can't it? And so it's really good to get that um, recommendation of one that's very specific to this topic that we're talking about today. Uh, nice one, right? Thank you, Megan, so much for, for coming on the show, talking about this topic. Um, I've really appreciated your time and your insights. Um, anything else you'd like to add about that maybe we didn't cover or about some work that's coming up that you're interested in? And if not, is that absolutely fine i can give you your your final quick fire questions at the end <laughs> the only other one thing that i had was there's this belief in some people a certain category of drinker i'm looking at you wine drinking which i am a part <laughs> of and i have fallen prey to this the belief that Wine makes you, like, you can tell the difference between a good wine and a bad one. I drink wine. I drink red wine because of the taste and because I'm fancy and sophisticated. Sorry, guys, but a new study came out that showed that they got all these wine-tasting connoisseurs into a room and they gave them a variety of wines from really cheap wine all the way up to thousands of dollars bottles of wine and the wine tasters, and these were people who did this for their profession, couldn't tell the difference between the cheap wine and the expensive wine. It's all about context, yeah. right? And to give you an example of this, I like to go to wineries and taste wines and come home and bring a box of wine home. And on occasions, more than one occasion, the wine has tasted amazing at the vineyard. And then I brought it home and it's not nice at home. And I'm like, what is this about? And it's not because of the wine itself. It's because I was there with my friends and it was like a big fancy vineyard and I was having a really nice time. And then we had a good lunch and then we did a wine tasting. And it was all this social context surrounding what was happening that made the wine taste different to what it actually was like when I got home and I was just sitting in my house on the couch. Crazy, right? All context, isn't it? It's all about context. <laughs> right. Three quick fire questions then to finish off that I ask every guest. The first one is, what's one lesson you wish you'd have been taught when you were a child? Good question. <laughs> I'm going to give you the same answer that I gave you last time because I think it's really important. And... The last time I shared this on your podcast was the first time I had admitted this in public. So it was, and it was kind of a freeing moment for me. So I wish I was taught that I am worth more than how I look. So all through my life, I have been worried about whether I'm pretty, whether I'm skinny. I'm always sort of focused on my body and 
so much so that I kind of have body dysmorphia now where I look in the mirror and I see an ugly person and I see a fat person, right? So I still, and I know logically in my brain that I'm not those things, but that's what I see. I wish I was taught by my parents, by society, by my school, by my friends that how you look doesn't matter. I mean, I have a PhD, I'm a research scientist, I'm a smart cookie, but none of that has ever mattered to me because I think I'm an ugly person. Do you know what I mean? So this is like, that's one thing that I wish that I was taught. And the reason, one of the main reasons that I went into research science in nutrition in the first place. So my honours um, study in psychology was uh, body image in the postpartum because I had my, I had a, my baby 10 years ago, put on weight, couldn't lose it, couldn't get back down to 45 kilos that I was. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, this is, it's a, it's a bad thing, but it's also something that's made me who I am today and made me a great researcher. So that is what I wish I was taught. Yeah, well, this is what we talk about when we're saying let's be more vulnerable with each other because how many people will listen to that and go, yep, I felt like that but I'd never shared it with anyone. No one ever shared it with me. And I thought it was just me. I thought it was just me that felt like that. But actually, if we look at all these beautiful people on social media that look like they've got it all and look like they're the most confident people in the world, I'd be willing to bet that a good percentage of them don't feel like that when they look in the mirror and they're looking at the tiny little thing that they uh, think that they should improve and they don't feel great and they don't feel like they've got much self-worth. They don't think they should be confident. They feel like an imposter. All these things, we, we just need to hear it. We need to hear it from more people. So I appreciate you um, sharing that, Megan, of course. No worries. Social comparison is making these things worse, exactly. right? But even back before social media, I was like that. Mm. So it's also something we teach our girls, right? Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. As in like the value of you've you only got worth because of the way you look. Is that what you mean? You've got to be skinny, you've got to be yeah. pretty, all that sort of stuff. Maybe it's like back in the day when I was young, so I grew up in the 80s slash mm. 90s. It was more like that and the images that you saw on TV, things like yeah. that. Um, or if you're a smart girl, you're like, eh, nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully the, the tide is turning and we're, we're realising it and ce celebrating the, the accomplishments, the achievements, the research, the titles, all that good stuff, and not just the superficial stuff. Next, next one. What's one habit that maybe you've introduced to your life that has helped you feel happier, healthier, something that you'd recommend to other people? So I'm going to lean on Martin Sullivan again from Positive Psychology, and I want to give everybody the advice that habits, are like dominoes, right? So if you're not one over, they tend to cascade. So for example, and this is all about mood and mental health. If I choose to make one change in the evening by texting my friend and asking them to go for a walk in the morning, that's one change, right? Or one thing I can add to my life. This will improve your mood and mental health because you will, number one, do some physical activity in the morning. Number two, get morning sunlight into your eyeballs. Who's <laughs> <laughs> Number three, benefit from the social connection with your friend. 
Number four, you are then more likely to make healthy eating choices for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks because of the exercise you did in the morning and the healthy way that you started your day. Number five, you are more likely to park further away from home, take the stairs, do incidental exercise, which is actually better than structured exercise. We can get into that another time. <laughs> Number six, you'll go to bed earlier and sleep better because of the morning activity and the melatonin from the sunlight in your eyeballs. And then you'll wake up earlier the next day, keen to start the cycle again. One habit stacks and changes your whole life, your whole day. And then you've got all of the lifestyle factors of improved mental health and mood. Preach. Love it. Love it. It's so <laughs> true. It's so true. And last one. Um, what's if you could give everyone in the world one book which book would it be now there's one book that we focus on throughout the episode so maybe it's that one or maybe I can uh, push you to recommend a, another one it's not it's in line with what I just said okay. 100% Atomic uh, Habits by James it's Clare. just like it's so good, isn't it? Hasn't it like <laughs> stayed in the bestsellers list for a ridiculous amount of time? Like it's still up there all the time. He, Two years, something maybe? like that. He must be absolutely laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> I've just um, made Atomic Habits my textbook. Yeah, for the I saw that. Yeah. Unit. yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's not really a textbook. It is now, but it's it's so good and. He, his newsletter as well that comes out every Thursday, I think it's called the three, two, one, something like Love that, it. isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. great. Like you, you, you can read it in what, like two minutes, but just so yeah. much kind of wisdom. I think that's what he uses the most words per wisdom, most wisdom per words, something like that. I think is his, his tagline. <laughs> but yeah, great recommendation for sure. Yeah. If we're going to continue talking about positive habits, things that we can introduce to our life. That is the book to read if you want to introduce something and then keep it up, isn't it? Um, really good recommendation. That's right. And you can read Atomic Habits with the lens of wanting to quit alcohol as well because the chapter is all about increasing positive habits but also decreasing negative habits. And so you can put that, if you're reading the book for the second time and you already know the content, which is what I did last time I read it, put that lens on, well, I'm going to focus on how I can use this information to help me quit alcohol or reduce my alcohol intake. Good stuff. Right. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. Um, really appreciate you coming back on the show. I'm so grateful that we kind of connected in the first place and then we've stayed in touch for however long it's been now and that you agreed to come back on the show. And, and like you said, there's plenty of other topics we could be talking about, couldn't there? I know that we could be talking about body image. I know that we could talk more about food and mood. Um, so I'm hoping that this is a regular occurrence. I do too. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you for tuning in. I really hope you found my conversation with Megan insightful. If you enjoyed the episode, please do share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think would find it interesting too. You can also support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thank you again and I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.